Hello and welcome to Drinks and Thinks, the podcast where I, Connor Stewart, talk to a couple of my friends about philosophy over a couple of alcoholic drinks. Today, I've got one of my good friends on the show, Aaron Aguma. Aaron, please tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Aaron Aguma, and I've had the pleasure of being in the same class as Connor for about how long? Uh, two years, actually, hasn't it? Yeah, for, for most of our subjects, yeah. For most of us. Some of them longer, yeah. That's true. I think we did history together in UF. Yeah. Which is year 10, for those of you who don't go to Cross Hospital. And uh, and we also did English. Oh, man, Mr. Walsh, what a guy. Oh, yeah, great. He was a great teacher, wasn't he? Yeah. Honestly, he I'm like, how many A-stars did our class get? It was ridiculous. Like, he's such a good teacher. He just knows how to, how to get the best out of his pupils. Yeah, it's true. And something I really did like about Mr. Walsh is that he encouraged us to kind of question everything which is which is what like I really do think education should be about yeah yeah for I mean our early years of education within Christ also I felt like you know of course we were very young at that point but I felt like we were just like taking in information from the teachers we weren't actually really giving our own input in a lot of it but with Mr. Walsh and with other teachers like Mr. Hatton, we really were encouraged to question what we were learning. And they really didn't let us <laughs> sort of just sit there. Yeah, th- and just, no. You know, yeah, and just like, you know, never. just absorb it. Yeah, never. Like, and I really did like that about those. Yeah, things. yeah. So, they were, yeah, probably one of my favourite two teachers, maybe. At Bro, Mr. Walsh always, he'd never stop. You remember when we were doing like the, the poetry anthology or whatever? He'd never stop talking about his femme fatale, always always that same <laughs> anyone else you know yeah exactly Macbeth oh my god that takes me back <laughs> I was talking the other day to someone about just like all the Shakespeare's texts that we've studied or whatever I've literally the only one I can properly remember is Macbeth I can even remember like a little bit of his like final soliloquy it's mad yeah because I think we really we studied Macbeth in a lot of depth yeah like for GCSE and like, oh, personally, I don't know about you, but I preferred studying Beth compared to studying The Secret River. I felt like The Secret River was just a pretty boring book, in my opinion. <laughs> like, I just, it was just a long slog. <laughs> like, get through that one. Yeah, I get you. I mean, to be fair, I think we had it. We had it better than most most other English students. I think almost like some people did like Inspector Calls or like Holes, and like. Ugh. I could not imagine holes. doing stuff like that for GCSE as peak. Yeah, no, last time I read Holes was like year six. <laughs> Literally. A long time ago. Um, but yeah, so on top of obviously, you know, having classes together and shit, we, we played rugby together for seven years, pretty much, you know, training together and shit yeah. like that. So that was, that, I think that's actually quite a large part of CH that I'm going to miss, you know, playing playing rugby with everyone. Yeah, rugby really did like allow us to bond a lot. I felt like I really did enjoy rugby at school. Yeah, I mean, and actually, my development in rugby was something that I really like. It's something I take a lot of pride in because I started off in the C team, I think. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, from year seven all the way to about year 10, I was on the C's, but then I managed to get into the A's around probably like year 11 and then that's when we really started playing a lot and then obviously that went into first team too yeah yeah so yeah so like I for me rugby has like a strong that's one of like the 
things I remember most about CH because that is an aspect of CH where I saw myself growing a lot yeah, yeah. in. Yeah, so rugby is definitely something that I really did enjoy at CH. And I mean, also, of course, you know, it's it's easy to uh, to become close mates with someone when you're having to shove your fingers up their bum to lift them up in the line out. <laughs> I think that was oh my God. experience for us. Yeah, I'm sorry, but like after that session, like I was, I was in shock. I was actually shocked in that rock. <laughs> like I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> Bro, you think it's you like, were in shock? I had Finn Carver shoving his thumbs up my crack. Like, oh god, it was painful. I don't know. Like it's just in rugby, like these things happen, and like it really does get you thinking. Like, what? What's? <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> like geez but like i mean like it's a fun game it's a really really fun game yeah yeah exactly i think it's probably my favorite sport actually favorite sport that i played at ch i didn't really like football that much i didn't really wasn't really my thing but yeah really didn't yeah yeah fair enough i mean looking back on it i can i can understand why people think boarding school turns you a little bit gay just the whole rugby <laughs> thing it's a bit bit fruity you know it is there we and are. like some of the teams you play are a bit you know oh yeah questionable as well so <laughs> like i remember there was one team we played and they were just they were just doing the most <laughs> like yeah it's, yeah it's crazy it's really crazy just to come back to what we were talking about earlier you know we had um obviously we did history together uh, and hopefully that's what most of the podcast today at least will be about um we had to write you know a, what was it 1500 word essay or something for our coursework and that felt so long and then having to do extended essays this year obviously for for ib was just it really put that into perspective for me yeah i remember that i mean the progression from gcc to ib was it was next level i mean like i remember we were in ge when we were um creating our coursework at the time i remember like 1500 words was I was I was like struggling to think how I would actually cover that much, you know, in just like in those amount of words. But yeah. when I go into IB and then I was told, oh, you're going to have to construct a 4,000 word essay on any topic that you want. I thought it was A, too broad and B, I didn't really see how I was going to write that much about the topic that, of my choice. Yeah, yeah. So... There was really, it's crazy, like, how, you know, it's crazy to step up. Mm, from, yeah, yeah, from exactly. GCC to IB, in my opinion. It is, it is. It was, I mean, it, we managed, we, we managed to, we, we survived. <laughs> IB survivors. Survivors, yeah. I wouldn't go as far to say we, uh, we thrived as such, but we definitely survived it. <laughs> we got through it. Yeah. Barely, with the skin of our teeth. <laughs> exactly. Um, but... That sort of brings up a question for me. What do you think history, in the broad sense of it, what is history, you know? Some people might say that history is like the past, you know, it's just things that happen. But to me, I think it's something a bit different. What do you think? Well, I would say that in one sense, history is the study of the past. I do think so. I mean, that's the sort of basic level, basic definition of history. We do study different periods of time, different epochs, whether it be the 1900s or whether we go all the way back to ancient times um, where we're looking at, you know, 300 BC with ancient Greeks. 
And but in another sense, I do feel like history does have sort of it does have such an influence on the here and now and on the future. So in a sense, I would say it is wrong to just limit history to the past because that past has such a such a strong and profound influence on how we conduct our lives now and how we will conduct our lives in the future, if you know what I mean. Mm. So that's sort of how I would, I don't really know how to phrase that. Into no, no, I get that. Yeah, yeah. Succinct and compact definition, but I would say let's not, I don't want to limit history to just something of the past because right. that's not giving history enough weight as because it is such a profound and broad subject. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, some people, so obviously, you know, there are people who just say that history is nothing more than the sum of things that happened, right. The past events, but obviously like what you're saying is, is that it's, it's a lot more than that. Um, yeah, because, because of the way it impacts, you know, our life and the future ultimately. Exactly. And that's kind of similar to, um, what Hegel says about history. You know, he says that ultimately we should only study it to find answers to our current problems in the wisdom of the past, as it were. What do you think about that? Hmm. Well, I think, I think that's a really good, I think in one sense, that is really, really good. I feel like, you know, we can look and we can look towards history if we do need answers. Cause like, if you think about certain things that have happened, like wars, like we look at the whenever we look whenever we study certain wars like the second world war we usually in history look at the causes and the consequences that's usually like a big thing and i feel like by looking at the causes of different wars how things happen causes the cold war breakdowns in relations i feel like when we analyze those kind of aspects of history we see kind of what not to do and like if we're ever in a sort of similar situation we can always look to the past and sort of you know, not go down that same road. So I do support, and I do feel like Hegel's kind of conception of history is really, is a really good one. And then again, I also feel like just studying history in itself, just to have a good knowledge of the past is also something really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Hegel's definition is an idea of history. Is Yeah, yeah. Definitely. It's it's, it's a really interesting, interesting conception, like you say, but, um, you know, is there any, um, any sort of stock in in what you say about um, meaning or sort of causes versus consequence, you know? Because obviously causes, we can supposedly look back in time, look at the evidence that we have and discover what the causes, like you spoke about, of the you know First World War, the Second World War, of the uh, invasion of XYZ. Um, we can see those causes in the evidence that we have, but ultimately, surely it's, ultimately unknowable to us whether or not those were the real causes whether or not we have the full picture surely that throws yeah. a bit of a spanner in the works for history that is very true and and another problem with this as well is that quite <clears throat> we can't really be sure like you said we can't really be sure whether some of this stuff is kind of made up in a way i feel like i, th I, th I forgot what brant what i was studying but this was for my talk essay, actually, mm -hmm. my first draft. I wanted to use history as one of the areas of knowledge that I was focusing on. And I believe I was focusing on the Aztec period. So the whole death of Mo um, Moctezuma and that kind of thing about 
um, that topic. But interesting. What what I found really funny was when I was studying that um, period and what actually happened during his death. Because I think we know that from what we know, I think you know he died by I think a stone hitting his eye from one of like there was sort of like a kind of revolt within you know Aztec society because they were unhappy and like someone threw a stone at his eye and he was a pretty frail man so he died from that yeah, but, yeah he, he actually he died from that so <laughs> that's pretty unfortunate death by, <laughs> by your own people but yeah um what I found interesting when I was reading up about um you know the Aztecs was that different sort of the Aztecs and the Spaniards had a sort of different conception of like how Moctezuma died, and I forgot what the I forgot what the Aztecs said, but this is how the Spaniards said it happened. But you know, I forgot what the Aztecs thought about Moctezuma's death. But I thought that was really interesting. But you know, obviously, the un- how we understand it now is how the Spaniards understood it. Right, right. So it's like you so, know, his- history is written by the victors, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's written by the victors, the conquerors, and you know, who knows who was right yeah this is, this is the problem is that ultimately we we can't know we can't unless you find a you know a time machine or whatever we can't go back and discover who was right we can't find out whether montezuma did exactly. die from a stone to his eye like a little um frail old man or whatever terminology you want to use there <laughs> yeah exactly it's, we 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 physically can't find out what we can't discern what the truth really is so in that sense History could be seen as pretty problematic because mm. what's to say that, you know, every like some of the key notions that like have prevailed over the, you know, over the ages are just false and are probably steering us in a wrong direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, of course, if, you know, if none of this stuff we can actually ever really understand, ever really know that it happened, then it kind of history in my eyes from being something that is just, you know, study of the facts, study of the evidence, which of course it is, you know, we need to look at sources and that kind of stuff and how reliable they are. But yeah. for me, the fact that ultimately, like you say, the past is unknowable, um, that makes it more of a thing about meaning and about consequence because the meaning of it, we can definitely analyze by the effects of it on people's lives that we see today, right? You know, you can talk about the Holocaust, and we can see the effects of that. We can talk to people who, or maybe not anymore, maybe uh, you know, most of them have died, but 20, 30 years ago, you could speak to people who were there. In that case, you know, history is this living thing that you can, you can really reach out and touch and talk to and get a real grip on. That's really true. But, you know, for the, for the things that happened, you know, a long, long time ago, you know, there's nobody alive. <laughs> yeah. There's nobody alive to, to confirm yeah. whether <laughs> this stuff is actually true or not. So it's it really is dangerous. And I do also feel like, you know, people occasionally, I don't know, but this could could be the case. We don't know. Some people may construct false history on purpose in order to sort of, in order to sort of, kind of immortalize their own conception of something or their own ideology if that makes Mm -hmm. sense Mm -hmm. yeah 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 Um, i mean you know there's yeah thousands probably of 
fairly ignorant people who deny that the Holocaust even happened. But this, yeah. we can never really, I mean, of course, we can, you know, we can point to evidence for stuff. But if, if someone comes along and, and claims that, um, you know, Julius Caesar, ne- Julius Caesar never existed, yeah, we can point to a few old dusty tomes and say, look, his name's written down here. But what does that really show? You know, ultimately, these doubters, to a certain extent, kind of are, we can't, you know, we can't prove them wrong. Yeah. We can't. It is, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but if if history is ultimately unknowable, does it just become then basically a you know a, a social science, a study of of the effects on humans? Mm. What do you think? That's a good question. Oh, I actually don't know. Oh, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> nice reversal, Daddy. <laughs> yeah. It's like tennis; you just play the ball right back to me. Play the ball, like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it does ultimately just become a, a social science, you know, a study of, like I said, the the effects more than the causes, because we can only study the stuff we have evidence for. Yeah. Um, and then you know, of course, there's a whole other, a whole other field that springs off of history which is called historiography, which is the study of the techniques that historians use, you know, which is like a whole other thing that we could get into, but probably not going to today at least. Yeah, I don't think we don't have the time. <laughs> no, <laughs> so exactly. That's a, whole exactly. Other, that's a whole other debate. Oh, yeah, entirely, entirely. So coming back to the thing about, you know, um, consequence, right? Do you think history changes then based on your viewpoint? Because obviously for... Um, Jewish, the Jewish community, right? The Holocaust is this horrible, horrible event. And for, you know, for the vast majority of humanity, it is this this black spot on the mark of humanity that shows how cruel we can really be. But if by some very unfortunate set of circumstances, you turn out to be a uh, a Nazi supporter, does that yeah. does that change the meaning of the Holocaust for you? I mean, well, certainly, I'd say. I think, let's say, we'll take the Holocaust example. If you're a Nazi supporter, you support Nazi ideology, and you're an avid supporter, supporter of Hitler. I don't really see how. Well, if we look, if you look at the events of the Holocaust, you wouldn't really be opposed to what happened, would you? So, but obviously, if you were sort of any other person i'm not just going to say if you were just you if you're any other person because we all know yeah how horrific the events of the holocaust were and it did happen it did indeed happen mm-hmm. i feel like you know we'd have a completely opposing opinion to somebody who was you know who really did support nazi ideology so in that sense i do feel like people can have different interpretations on historical events and that does have an effect on understanding so if if history ultimately is just you know our interpretation does that mean that it's really at that point just subjective does history just become a you know this this thing that we can ultimately decide we can decide what what historical events mean to us and that's all that history is what do you think well i do feel like in that sense there is a certain there is a certain degree of subjectivity to history, isn't there? I feel like we do decide 
whenever we look at something, we look at facts, whether they, we don't, there's some facts which we, you know, we are not really sure on whether they are objective or not, but there are some objective history, fa historical facts. But when we look at those facts, we can decide for ourselves what they mean to us. And different things hold different meanings to different people. Yeah. And I think it's all a matter of, I feel like this is a really philosophical kind of, really philosophical kind of argument here you know certain things have different meanings to different people so i feel like when you look at that a certain period of history your interpretation of that might be completely different to somebody else's but so in that sense there is a sort of subjective nature to the analysis of history but you know there's also a certain degree of objectivity to mm -hmm. it because the facts that we have you know let's say the second world war occurring at this state hitler dying during on this day those certain things that there's some things which we know are you know the truth objective right right and i mean obviously if if history does become this subjective thing about about people's viewpoints ultimately does that mean that you can have you can't have a wrong view about history because surely you know we from an ethical standpoint we want yeah. to say that the nazi supporters view on the holocaust is wrong but if history ultimately is just this subjective thing, it's, it makes no sense then to call that opinion wrong. Hmm. Well, this does really, I feel like with situations like the Holocaust, when we're talking about, you know, the subjective opinions of different people, I feel like we really do get into sort of a kind of moral argument mm -hmm. with this one. And obviously there's obviously a whole difficult, that's a really difficult debate in itself, morality. But yeah, I mean, I guess we would have to, I guess there's no like objective standpoint, I guess. But I feel like we'd all, I think like most of us would sympathize with, you know, the idea that, you know, the Holocaust was something that was wrong. Mm -hmm. if you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah. Of i think with 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 something with with these kind of moral arguments there is no kind of i don't think i think it's really difficult to find some kind of objective proof that something is kind of you know wrong right if that makes sense yeah but you know, yeah but you know from if we gauge the kind of opinions of the masses i'm not saying the opinions of the masses are always correct because we found <laughs> you know sometimes sometimes you know the opinions of the masses can be very problematic when you look at things like racism and everything mm -hmm. but you know yeah so it is really difficult to find the objective moral decision but you know so i would say that in that sense history is sort of subjective and you yeah. can't really say whether something is right or wrong what about you? What do you think about this? No, I think, well, I mean, obviously, as a, as a student of philosophy, as, as a human being, it feels yeah. to me, and I'm sure it feels the same to you and to, of course, our listeners, that, you know, we feel this urge to, to say that it is wrong. And that, yeah. you know, steers you away from this view that history can just be this subjective thing. Because we don't, we don't want to admit that it's okay for someone to say the Holocaust didn't happen or the Holocaust was a good thing. We don't want to say that that's a good, that's an okay view to hold. Um, so, yeah. of course, that pulls me away from that view of, of historical subjectivism. And ultimately, of course, there are 
pieces of evidence, as dubious as they may be. And of course, there's this whole thing in in, in history, sorry, about, um, what was it? Uh, the absence of evidence does not equate to the evidence of absence. Now, that's not my quote. I'm not quite sure who said that. I'm not sure if it was a philosopher or a historian, uh, but I'm not taking, yeah. taking credit for that statement. But <laughs> I, I think it does really emphasize the fact that just because, you know, there's no evidence pointing to one thing or another doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Just because we're missing parts of the picture doesn't mean there isn't a picture to be seen, you know? Yeah. And that's a big problem in history. But in spite of that, the evidence that we've got, the evidence that we can look at, and, you know, the techniques that we have nowadays are insanely accurate, right? We can look at a bone and tell you exactly the year or the, the century when it came from. Like, it's insane the technology that we have now to do history. Um, so for me, it's, it's really hard to dismiss the objective side of history. Um, but to steer a little bit more, I guess, towards the ethical question, just because, you know, this is about philosophy and, and ethics is a huge part of philosophy. There's a, yeah. you know, there's a huge debate going on at the moment in the media and in the public eye about statues of slave traders, right, that are around the world or people, not even slave traders, people who are associated with the slave trade or just people of the time who endorsed or didn't stand up against slavery. What do you think about that? Is it okay to leave those statues up? Because surely taking them down is just dismissing slavery as a whole. What do you think? Well, obviously, yeah, this is a huge argument that's been going around the world. Um, we've had statues of, I think, Cecile Rhodes mm -hmm. in um, Royal College, Oxford, has actually, um, after all the petitions and, you know, the rallies, it has finally been decided that by them the border is going to be taken down so that's an example of one but other statues have been taken down by force yep by protesters and my honest my opinion of this is that of course i do feel like of, of course slavery happened and i don't feel like we should dismiss the past however however a lot of the statues that we have of former slave traders in you know real really public places in really important places for i don't i, I, don't, I forgot the, per, the name of the person in bristol mm, i know but it was right out yeah it was right out there in the open and i feel like if we are going to have these statues of these people i feel like we should maybe at the bottom of the statue just give a brief description about like you know what what they did and you know that they were involved in slave trading that they were involved in certain things that may make the public you know it may make the public a bit unhappy but i feel like honesty is the best policy right yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. because i feel like if you don't a lot of these statues that we have of former slave traders we just have the name and the date of this person and it more feels like um, it feels like more of a glorification. I think that's exactly that person. Yeah, I think that's exactly than... what it is. It is, you know, those statues are there because somebody in that city or somebody who idolized this person wanted to glorify them. And I think, like exactly. you say, glorifying somebody is all well and good, but everybody has their faults, right? And that yeah. is not me excusing slavery. Slavery is more than just, you know, a human fault, slavery is immoral. 
Yeah. So I agree with, you know, I, I entirely agree with what you say. Honesty is the best policy. You, you can't leave this statue up to glorify somebody who's done something so immoral without exactly. putting forward the fact that that has happened, you know? Obviously, Aaron, at this point in the show, it's customary for me to ask you, what are you drinking today? Ah, oh, Connor. So, I mean, I'd like to say here, right now, I had a budget. <laughs> <laughs> I I spent my money on a gym membership this month, obviously, because I was being a really lazy guy during this lockdown. So I went to Tesco with £10 and bought myself, uh, what is this? Trevento Reserve Malbec. So I think it's red Argentinian wine. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, I'm also drinking. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I'm also drinking a little bit of red. I'm having a a little Cab Sav Cabernet Sauvignon from Chile, Um, and it's you know it's the reason for our listeners. This is the reason we chose to drink red wine (laughs) is because (laughs) customarily a large part of what the ancient Greeks and Romans drank was for the most part red wine, and you know one of my um, sort of most um, vivid depictions or images of that sort of um, Bronze Age Mycenaean period in ancient Greek in ancient Greece sorry is of you know all these images that Homer talks about in the Odyssey about the red wine in the mixing bowls and all of that stuff so I thought you know red wine would be a bit a bit fitting for history and that kind of stuff <laughs> good choice that's a very good choice <laughs> I mean taste wise though I mean what do you think about red wine I, I really like it. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not for everyone, but oh, it goes, it goes so well with, you know, something tomato-y or some red meat. It just really hits the spot for me. I don't know. What about you? Um, uh, funny enough, I'm not really much of a fan of red wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to drink it uh, for every, anybody who was in um, Grecian's East at the time. <laughs> they'd know that I'd always get red wine every Saturday night because there was sort of, we were given a choice between ciders, wines, and like, it felt like red wine was the quickest thing I could get down into my system so I could get a bit tipsy on the night. <laughs> so <laughs> I would just get myself two sets of red wine and I'd try and get other people's too. And like, that would usually, some if I hadn't eaten, that would usually do the job. So <laughs> it would see you through with it. Exactly. So I'd regularly take in something that I just didn't really like that much, but I mean, it's okay, I guess. I mean, I, pr- I think I prefer white wine, though. Mm, interesting, interesting. I was having this conversation with um, with Arthur on the last episode, actually, about how white wine just really gives me a headache. I just can't stand it. Yeah, yeah. Red wine I love, but white wine just gives me a headache. Cannot stand it. Another sort of main question, you know, we've spoken about what history is and what it's about, but the question is, why do we... Why do we bother do history? Why do we think about the past and the events that happen and the consequences that they have? You know, why why should we? What do you think, Aaron? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, like we said before, I feel like studying history can help us avoid certain pitfalls. So in that sense, history can sort of teach us it can sort of steer us in the right direction, I feel like, because I think everybody hates to make the same mistake twice. That's something that, you know, 
especially me, I don't like making the same mistakes twice. So I feel like by studying history, we can avoid making those really big mistakes by just looking at, you know, maybe our country in the past, other countries in the past, and, you know, learning from those mistakes that they may have made. So in that sense, I feel like, you know, history is a subject that is pretty, pretty important. It's a prominent subject in our day and age. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Connor? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, what you said just there reminded me of something that um, that my that my dad told me when I was younger, that his dad had told him when he was younger. And that was, um, everybody makes mistakes, you know, no, no worry uh, being afraid of making mistakes everyone makes mistakes but only an effing idiot makes the same mistake twice <laughs> and i think you know, i think that's a bit harsh but i can see where where he was coming from um and you know like you say it is um this sort, sort of that saying i'm not sure who it was i think it's sometimes attributed to churchill but i'm not sure it was him um you know yeah. those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it and in a, you know in a certain sense you know history doesn't repeat canonically you know identically but i mean there were people who who did think that um i think it may have in fact been aristotle or or one of those sort of lads who thought that history was basically just a cycle that is doomed to repeat itself every i don't know hundred thousand years or something like that it's a it's a big wheel a circle that just continues round and round and round um but I, I agree with what you're saying on a, on a more um, sort of pragmatic level that if we don't learn about the mistakes that other people make, we are, you know, we're going to make those mistakes again as a, a yeah. civilization, as a society, and even sometimes as an individual, you know? That's very, very true. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't um, Edmund Burke have a sort of similar idea of history as well? How he thinks we should learn from tradition. Right. And so okay. that means... Yeah, I mean, of course, he feels like with his conservative ideology, he feels like we should, we should always, we should sort of embody the ideas of the past because, you know, you know, what was it? Tradition is like the accumulated wisdom over the ages. Yeah, I think that's what he says. Exactly. But I, but I feel like he also sort of acknowledges that you know there have been certain pitfalls that we have made in the past, and I feel like, you know, tradition can kind of highlight those kind of mistakes because as you go on you sort of build in mm-hmm. that sense you sort of see or, you know you have to analyze okay this person did this wrong okay how am i going to move on from this right and then you establish your sort of conception your sort of idea and those notions become a sort of tradition and then the next generation kind of follows suit and they see okay hang on and then they establish their own kind of set of ideas and we kind of follow on from there so it's sort of ironing out the kind of things that you don't want to kind of continue with if that makes sense yeah i don't, yeah, know, if I, that, sense. I don't know if i elaborated on that correctly but no, no no that's that's really interesting i mean obviously you know burke's view is very much a, a conservative one in that he's really arguing for tradition there and of course you yeah. know i'm sure we have some uh some more left-wing listeners who are thinking that tradition is certainly not the best thing and you know it comes back to the whole talk we had before the little break about slavery and all that kind of stuff and you know Tradition clearly there was not in the right. Yeah, didn't have exactly. that much part. Um, but um, coming back to sort of uh, what you said about learning from the mistakes of the past, you know, surely we can just learn from the mistakes of those around us, right? We don't have to look too far into the past 
into history to see people making the mistakes that are going to be realistically most relevant to us. You know, one might argue there's not much that Plato or Socrates' mistakes in life or uh, Pericles' mistakes in politics, there's not much that those can teach you as uh, you know, a thinker today or as a politician today that the yeah. mistakes of John down the road can't teach you, you know? Surely the people around us are best suited for showing us how not to do things. And that's not, you know, uh, a, uh, a prod at the common people uh, or at anyone. But the point is, people make mistakes around you. Is it not enough to learn from those? Do we have to look back over our shoulders into the past to to find examples of how we shouldn't be living? Well, well, I'd say that there's, I mean, if we look around us, there's, I mean, of course we do have history. I mean, history is a part of our curriculum. So from, you know, from a really young age, I think most people have studied some form of history, maybe not the same eras, but they have studied history. But I feel like a more in-depth study of history isn't really necessarily needed in order to thrive, in order to you know, sort of avoid making um, drastic errors. Because as you said, we can learn from the people around us. I mean, I feel like our parents are a really pivotal point in this kind mm -hmm. of conversation because they teach us a lot, like you said with your dad. I mean, that piece of advice, <laughs> like, you know, they can sort of, you know, our parents guide us. They, you know, teach us things and we learn from them. And not even just our parents, this extends to other people outside of our um, familial group as well, teachers or even just elders that we meet. So in a sense, I don't think an in-depth study of history is necessarily needed. However, however, that being said, I do feel like it definitely does help in certain situations because there are some sort of ideas, I feel like, which are perennial, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. You sort of have perennial ideas which kind of come through like in every single kind of age. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, you have perennial problems that are forever going to be needed to be solved. Exactly. And I feel like even if we look back at Plato's time, I mean, like you saw the issues that Plato had with um, democracy. I mean, mm. I feel like with people in general that can, I feel like we've all, we can kind of see that happening. I feel like with them. Um, I think that's not something that, you know, is really uncommon to us. No, um, no. Occasionally, like, there we do have a person. I'm not saying this is, like, I'm not saying what Plato said is absolutely correct, but just to lay out what he sort of, what I think he sort of says is that, you know, there's usually, we usually have somebody who is fit to do the job. We know somebody, he's, you know, that guy kind of thing. You, I mean, you, you've gotten, like, an idea of that guy in your head. But then, you know, we have a, a large mass of people who don't really necessarily know what they're talking about and they haven't taken the time to educate themselves on the sort of thing that everybody needs guidance on like this person does who specialized to do that sort of certain thing but obviously because of the because of we're trying to make democratic decision, decisions over here the large mass of people the majority will always you know have have more have more of a significant weight over the minority so that person who is fit to do the job will always be kind of casted out mm -hmm. and will mm -hmm. not get his say. So, and I feel like, you know, 
in certain situations that can be a bit can be pretty problematic because we won't really be going we won't really be progressing in the sort of way direction that is best or direction that we'd like to because you know those sort of certain people and those certain people could have really problematic views the mass the majority as we said i mean if we look at history i mean i'm pretty certain a quite a, a large majority of people back then really did support slavery <laughs> yeah. like like the the lot the masses really did they weren't there was only a real select few a minority thought hang on a minute you know enslaving individuals is wrong you know importing people from different countries just to have just to have the novelty of saying oh look at me i have a house slave or you know those kind of things aren't really it's not it's not morally correct and just because the majority were in favor of this that's why the mm-hmm. sort of ideas were so prevalent mm-hmm. so right i guess sort of tyranny of the majority is a can be an issue Right, and that is that is an issue we can then learn from. We can see that in Plato's day, you know, Plato had an issue with that, mainly because you know people voted to off his mentor and have yeah. have Socrates drink hemlock. You know, that's it's not going to give you a good impression of democracy, really. So we yeah. can see then, obviously, why uh, Plato has these issues with democracy, you know, by looking at history, and so we can bring that wisdom, as it were, forwards. And think to ourselves, you know, why do certain people have problems with democracy? Ultimately, it's because they are the minority who are being screwed over in one way or another by the majority. Like you say, tyranny of the majority. Of course, there's a whole ethical question there about whether that's okay. And of course, you know, utilitarians would say, of course, it's fine because the majority are happy. But, you know, that's a whole sort of other, um, other topic for another day. What I want to talk about a little bit now is more... Before the break, we were talking about people like Cecil Rhodes, who have huge statues and huge, you know, empires of reputation in in our Western histories, right? Yeah. The question I want to ask is, what is history really about? Is it about, as Thomas Carlyle said, great men? Is it just about people, and I'm not in any way condoning what Cecil Rhodes has done, or did, um, and I'm not saying he's a great man in the sense that he was great, but he was a big figure of the, his day. He did, yeah. he had a huge impact. He was highly significant in his day, right? Yeah. Is history about great men like Rhodes, like Napoleon, like Caesar? Is it more about periods of time? Like you say, like you spoke about earlier, epochs, eras, the Victorian era, the Tudor era, all of this kind of stuff, the Mycenaean era. Or is it more in fact, about specific events like the Second World War, like, you know, the First World War and Gavrilo Princip making an assassination attempt on Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Is that what history is about? What do you think? I'd like to say it's a mix. So I'd say history, like what Tom, Thomas Carlyle said, can really be focused on great men i mean if you think about it the fact that you know we're studying i mean usually for example if you're just looking at the history curriculum for example i mean like we usually study events so like second world war first world war those kind of things and but however i feel like the individuals if we're ever to study an individual 
with a great degree of focus, it's usually someone who, I mean, it wouldn't be someone who's, you know, irrelevant. He has to be a great man. He has to be a prominent figure. Julius Caesar, for example. Whenever we're talking, whenever we're talking about Roman history, he is somebody who comes up because he had a massive influence on Roman society. I mean, remember the first triumvirate? You know, him. I think it was. I believe it was him, Marcus Crassus, and it might. It's either Lepidus or Pompey. I'm pretty sure it was Pompey. I think the first triumvirate was. Pompey, maybe. I'm not sure. You're the one studying classics, mate, you know. <laughs> but like you say, I, I agree entirely that it is, you know, we do have to focus on these these great men. But yeah. um, one sort of counter-argument to Thomas Carlyle, and I'm not sure whose this was, um, but he says that ultimately, yes, we're talking about these great men, but that's not really what history is about. Because these great men are ultimately, in a way that sort of Arthur and I discussed last episode ultimately these great men are purely products of their society so what we're really trying to study when we look at these great men when we look at periods of history is the society is the civilization sorry that's existing in that period of time Mm. that's interesting that's that's a bit of food for thought Mm. i mean i'd say that is a really good point actually we are sort of, through these people, these great figures are sort of, can be an emulation of the society which they live in. However, I do feel like it's really interesting to look at these prominent figures because there is a reason that these figures stand out in the way that they do in history and they would have stood out in their society during that day. And it's usually because they have sort of deviated from the norm. Right, they're, they're different. Doing, yeah, they're not doing what everybody else is doing because if they were, then we wouldn't. There wouldn't be such a great degree of focus placed. Right, them. they wouldn't be significant. Yeah. They wouldn't be interesting. They'd just be exactly. your average Joe. They'd just be Kaikelius, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's this is one of the reasons why I feel like we look at people like Julius Caesar. I mean, he's a he was highly influential and he did break a lot of barriers within Roman society. Mm-hmm. And it's because of that, it's because he wasn't a sort of direct sort of, you know, manifestation of the perfect Roman. It's because he sort of, I think he's really an interesting figure because he sort of, you know, he wasn't really, but because he sort of managed to make such a, a big name for himself and he managed to have such a great influence in Roman society, despite not being sort of the ideal citizen in everybody's eyes at the beginning, he sort of managed to kind of make himself into one, if that yeah. makes sense. He sort of managed, like everybody sort of changed their per- their sort of perception of what the ideal Roman citizen would be. Yeah, and they were like, mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You know, maybe Caesar, you know, <laughs> Caesar, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. And this is this is basically the way I I believe that Carlyle rebuts that argument is to say that realistically, these people aren't going to be significantly molded by their society before they mold the society around themselves. Like you say, Caesar, yeah, he was, he was different. He wasn't, okay, he was a product of Rome to a certain extent. He wouldn't have been the person he was if not for Rome. But because he was sufficiently different and he gained so much power and he acted so differently from everyone else, he did ultimately get to the point where he was molding the view of the Roman around himself. He was changing society. 
And that's why he is so important and significant and why we study great men and women. Exactly. Obviously, men in, in this context is just humans. Yeah, <laughs> just wanna just wanna just wanna know, clarify, <laughs> clarify that. Yeah, this is this is honestly so true. I mean, he was he could be basic. He controlled the Senate. I mean, if you actually think about that, and I'm not really sure about what his, I'm not hundred percent sure about his roots were, but I'm not really. I don't think he was born into sort of upper into the upper echelon of society either, within Rome. I mean, and yeah. His family were, they weren't, you know, they weren't peasants, but by no means was he one of the most, the most powerful people from birth. No. Exactly. And this is the thing. I'm pretty certain that the, the members of the Senate were usually members of that sort of caste of society. They were usually members of the upper echelon from when they were sort of young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for someone to rise the ranks of Roman society, I mean, first he had to sort of make a name for himself in Gaul. He had to, you know, he was running, he was within, he was a member of the first triumvirate with um, Crassus, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, I think it was Pompey, actually. You, I think you were around that one, yeah. Go with that. We'll go with that. We'll go, <laughs> we'll go with Pompey. But yeah, actually, yeah, it was. I'm actually 100% certain on this one. And, you know, obviously because Crassus had the money. Crassus was like the sort of, at that point, period of time, Crassus was the ideal kind of Roman, that he had the right, money, right. he had all the power. And then Caesar... I mean, Caesar didn't really have those kind of things. So Caesar had to sort so, of make a name for himself and go. He had to, he had to like have, he had to sort of go to Gaul, make a name for himself there and conquer the place which the Romans had struggled with so he could come back and, you know, sort of stand on the same footing as other members of the triumvirate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this, again, raises, you know, a whole other thing for me, at least. You know, we can look at the small individuals in history. We can look at, the life of an average Victorian or the life of an average Roman. But ultimately, mm. history appears to be, at least, if you look at it in, in the light of great men, appears to be focused around power. That's what history is about. It's about power and the struggle to gain power in human society. And whether or not that's, that's an innateness, an innate property of history being about power, or whether it's an innate property of humanity, you know, most of our struggles being about gaining and losing power is another another question. Um, but I just want to come on to sort of what really this all boils down to, or for me at least, or at least it's a way that the questions we've been asking so far can be summed up, is as a historian, right, if you are a historian, are you more of a a scientist, somebody who analyzes fact in an empirical way to gain results or are you more of a a philosopher or an artist or a, a scholar who just sort of tells a story in a way is it more subjective what do you think hmm. i feel like now that i think about it I'd like to say philosophy has a lot of, has a, a great deal of significance in within history. Mm-hmm. Now that I think about it, now I feel like, of course, we do look at facts. Facts are facts that like you know we need to know the dates. We need to know what happened in certain mm-hmm. events. However, I do feel like that's just a, that's just scratching the surface, in my opinion. You know, I feel like we need 
with history we go above and beyond and we start looking into you know ideas ideas of the times whether they how they relate to our ideas and I feel like when you sort of progress within the subject I feel like you sort of get into that sort of philosophical nature of philosophy so I would say more of a I don't know if it'd be right for me to say this, but I feel like a more basic level of history would just be an analysis of the facts. Mm-hmm. Because that's sort of the thing that you would do in GCC. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you'd say, oh, the second world war happened at this time. Hit the, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened. But whereas you progress into history, as you do maybe do A-level IB history, I feel like you actually sort of analyse the different ideas of the times, what, you know, the different um, schools of thought that prevail during that time yeah yeah and you know sort of you know get a good grasp of that and sort of compare it into your own and sort of you know think about it and you know give your own take on that opinion so right, right. i do think it's really i think a lot of it is pretty well more advanced history is philosophy is quite a lot of it is philosophy. so in a way really when we're talking about you know uh, analyzing the meaning or the significance or the consequences of any historical event period person we're really building history from science as a as a foundation and philosophy is the rest of it you know history ultimately what we're saying or what we think is history is philosophy built on a foundation of science yeah that is yeah i would agree with that statement great great. so as we're as we're nearing the the end of the show i'm gonna circle back to what I did at the end of our last episode with Arthur, where I asked him what he thought philosophy is. And I'm trying to create a, a bit of a tradition almost here, uh, yeah. because I find it's, it's really interesting knowing what philosophers think philosophy is, but more interesting in a way to me, knowing what your average teenager thinks philosophy is. So to, to you, Aaron, what is philosophy? Oh, <laughs> this reminds me of our meta-philosophy lessons and people just bring that question <laughs> on us. And that yeah, you've got, got, got a bit of a head start. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you do do have a bit of a head start on all of my other guests so far, or on Arthur at least, and I'm sure on many more to come, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, I would say for me, I think philosophy is sort of, it really is, well, I, I, I really do support the sort of kind of, phenomenological basis of philosophy i do feel like when we look at philosophy we sort of we we whenever we study certain topics certain notions of philosophy we sort of kind of you know take it in and it is sort of we sort of perceive it within ourselves if that makes sense so we all kind of understand things differently and i feel like that main sort of principle in phenomenology is something that i feel like is also really the essence of philosophy in itself if that makes sense so it's really weird that like a branch of philosophy in my opinion also kind of sort of sums up kind of philosophy and on the whole too because I really I feel like whenever I study philosophy I'm always sort of you know trying to kind of relate it into things that I've kind of experienced it's always really about my kind of experience if that makes sense yeah. And so, like would you say applic- yep. would you say that philosophy is is really then just sort of the the analysis and the 
thinking about our daily human lives and our experiences yeah it's thinking about daily human life experiences and um definitely i think a lot of it i personally think application is really important too mm-hmm. um application is really important and this is why i really did like whenever we study political philosophy i think that was probably one of my sort of favorite topics in the ib actually yeah because yeah. i liked the sort of idea that what i studied in those lessons could be i mean if we think about political theory it could be applied into one day situations yeah of and course like, and obviously it was also a strand of philosophy that recognized the difference in experiences i mean when we look to political concepts i mean liberty you know equality essential contested fraternity. Just, yeah exactly yeah fraternity <laughs> like you know when we looked at essential contestability and how people will always understand these concepts differently i thought you know this is this is something i really do like because it's recognizing the subjectivity of you know these big things that you know we still we will we still debate about and we always will debate about because it's different for everybody right great well thank you for that aaron i think i certainly agree with pretty much everything you said i hope you as the listener of course have any thoughts or, or, or disagreements or agreements with whatever Aaron said, please feel free to let me know, let him know. I'll, I'll drop um, Aaron's socials in the description somewhere. Um, and thank you for coming and listening in to today's episode of Drinks and Thinks, a podcast where I talk to my friends about philosophy over drinks. <laughs>